Hello and welcome back to the Politics of Race in American Film, a podcast from the US Centre at the London School of Economics. I'm Dr. Clive James Nwonka, a fellow in film studies in the Department of Sociology at the LSC. In this episode, we're examining the representations of race, gender and class in contemporary American cinema by discussing the 2016 film American Honey and the Florida Project from 2017. In American Honey, our protagonist star leaves her home to join a group of fellow teenagers who travel around the American Midwest selling magazines door to door. The central themes of the film are geographical crossing, social trespass, youthhood and coming of age. The Florida Project takes a look at the precariousness of the socio-economic ladder in the United States through the eyes of Mooney, a young girl living at the Magic Castle Motel with her mother not far from the American landmark Disney World. Within their community of working class families, hotel staff and accidental tourists, Mooney's adventures weave into the narrative her mother Haley struggles to keep a roof over their heads. Both these films are relevant to the podcast's interest in the politics of race through offering a novel representation of Black and Latinx characters within the context of precarity, poverty, and geographical space in the US. We have three guests joining us for this episode's discussion. Firstly, we have Louisa Heredia, who is the Joanne Woodward Chair in Public Policy at Sarah Lawrence College. Her research interests include Latino and immigration politics, with special interests in migration control regimes, social movements, inequalities in citizenship, and religion in the United States and Spain. Shirley Cobb is an Associate Professor of Film at the University of Southampton and was Principal Investigator on the AHRC-funded project Calling the Shots, Women in Contemporary Film Culture in the UK. Her research interests include women filmmakers, equality and diversity in the film and television industries, and feminism, post-feminism, and popular feminism in media. Meli Hoyes is the Industry Inclusion Executive at the British Film Institute. She works on projects to increase race and gender representation in the UK film industry. She completed a BA in Film and Literature at the University of Warwick and an MA in the History of Film and Visual Media at Birkbeck College, University of London. Before joining the BFI, she worked at UCL and taught in Film, Media and Cultural Studies at the University of Sussex. So it's a pleasure to welcome to the podcast episode three fantastic guests, Shelley, Mel and Louisa. How are you all? Good, thank you (laughs) for having us. Yeah, thanks. It's an absolute pleasure. And um, we obviously could be speaking around the two films in question, The Florida Project um, from 2017 and American Honey from 2016. Both are very, very interesting texts in their representations of racial difference, of poverty, and of gender identity. But equally, this idea of crossings of territories, crossings of cities, and also the economic, social, and cultural crossings that come with that as well. So I'm interested in what you all think around the film, both individual films and thinking about them collectively as well. Um, Shelley, what were your initial thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I really, I personally like the films for their investment in youth and the questions of class, race, and gender in non-adults, you know, the the teenagers of American Honey, um, and then the kids of um, the Florida Project who are impossible not to kind of want to pick up and (laughs) take care of. Um, I like that kind of kid's eye or young person's view, the way the narrative does that. 
Andrew Arnold's film is pretty, the collective thing around the, around the teenagers, them in the van working together, um, the kinds of infighting, but also the rules that they have, etc. I just found it all quite compelling. Like you feel like you're sitting in the van with them a lot of times. Um, and I like that about the film, like the way that brings you in. And I think the same too, that, that child's eye view works in Florida Project where you feel like you're there with them rather than kind of distance from it through a kind of more um, adult head perspective. There are lots of things to, to talk about <laughs> in terms of gender, race and class. Um, but it's the youth thing that I think really kind of caught my attention. But the Florida project in particular, and it's being based around Disney World and the kind of the idea of the Magic Kingdom and the different ways that it plays the backdrop to, to the reality, right? That any kind of place like that, any kind of fantasy attraction place inevitably has this underside, this other side, um, this working side to it, which is hidden away from its, its fantasies um, and using the Magic Kingdom in that way, using Disney is pretty, pretty effective um, and super effective, I think, in the Florida project especially when it comes to thinking it through the, the kids' eyes there. Mel, was that a similar experience for you, thinking around this question of youthhood and seeing America through the eyes of the youth? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for me, I love both of these films, actually. American Honey took me more watches to, to kind of love. Um, I think the first time I watched it, I didn't feel that way about it straight away. But the more I've watched it, the more I kind of fell in love with those characters and... And the Florida Project, I just love, it just brings me to tears every time. I just, it's so, it's got so much heart. And yeah, absolutely. I think the perspective, I think you often see this narrative of um, of class in America that's that's really sort of downtrodden. And these, these films are no different. You have all of these like awful things happening to these young kids. And, but there's a real sense of community in both of them with, you know, the kids and, and the other kids that they hang around with and, um, their sort of daily trips to the ice cream truck and that kind of thing, um, whilst there are some adults trying to shepherd them away from, from those experiences uh, or not, as the case may be. Um, but, I, I, yeah, both of them I feel sort of quite strongly that there's a root in the community that they build for themselves that's almost outside of their family um, and kind of what, that does for their kind of spirit so there's a lot of joy in those communities in spite of everything else that's going on and I think you really feel feel that joy and then you every now and again you kind of get brought back to the reality of what their life is but I, I sort of really appreciate that perspective because it's not all doom and gloom and I think a lot of films and social realist films around this subject really focus on you know god it's awful all the time and poor people can't ever be happy and I think it just they both really capitalize on those like moments of joy often in music as well and I really appreciated that about both of those. Uh, Louisa would you also think around both films in this idea of joy and community and a particular representation of the American city? Yeah I mean I think uh, I, I saw something similar right um, taking that perspective um, of youth, right? These kind of children and then kind of teenagers moving into adulthood. Um, I think from their perspective, we get to see that sense of adventure, right? The kind of multiple crossings of territory, right? Of the kids kind of leaving you know, their kind of home base and again, walking to the ice cream place, um, going on the safari, right? Really, you see this sense of adventure. And, and so I also really appreciated that from both films. I'm seeing that, but right, the, the other side of that, right, is the precarity, right? There's also just 
a stone's throw away from, from that kind of doom and gloom, um, but from the perspective of kind of adolescents, from the perspective of teenagers, um, we're, we're uh, led into this other part of that world. Um, so I, I really appreciated that from both films. I think one of the things that I really appreciated from particularly from the Florida project was actually the representation of kind of Latinos in that film, right? Um, and thinking about questions of poverty and the working poor, but also of like Afro-Latinidad, which is something I don't think we see as much kind of in films or when we're thinking about questions of like poverty and race and gender. Um, so that was certainly kind of one of the things that um, I appreciated and really kind of picked up on. The other thing, you know, for me, the Florida project, the ending, you know, you're, you're taking through all of these adventures and then with the end for me, it was so stark and so unbelievably sad um, to kind of end, you know, with, with the two girls kind of running away to uh, Disney World, right? And I, I thought it was such a great representation of the stark inequalities that we have in the US, right? Where people have access to kind of tourism, fantasy, fun, right? Um, very commercialized versions of that. Um, and that in the shadow of that, you can have the working poor, poverty, people who are really kind of just trying to trying to get by. Um, the last thing I'll say is I also saw the sense of community on the other side, right? So in the absence of the state, right, without kind of access to resources and whatnot, you see the way that people are building community for however precarious that is as well, um, but in ways that they themselves are also kind of helping each other out, whether that's by providing food, providing childcare, providing lodging, um, things like that. So I, I thought both films were really kind of rich and full, both in the sense of adventure, um, but also then kind of in the sense of giving us a window into like the lives of uh, poor people, the working poor, poverty across a, a number of geographies. Thank you. That's fantastic. Um, so just thinking about this idea of the films representing the American city, but also thinking around the histories of film culture that you alluded to, Shelley. I'm interested in how we think around the character of Star in American Honey, who is obviously distinctive because she's a black mixed race woman who is existing in a very, very white social space in Oklahoma. There is something particularly novel about her representation. However, her race doesn't seem to be material in the film. It's never really kind of mentioned, it's simply just assumed. Um, Mel, what were your thoughts around the character of Star in particular? I think Star is a hugely interesting character. I agree that it's it's one of those representations where race isn't really addressed, but at the same time in the group that she joins, it feels like she is this sort of anomaly. It feels like she's special and that that brings her sort of negative and positive attention from uh, from the Riley Keough character. It's almost like it's it's almost like her mixed race brings her they, it feels like a sort of sense of snobbery from the rest of them which is really un, is, is really unusual because that's not often the portrayal you see so it's almost like she they think she thinks she's special and I think that's because of her racial identity even though that's never sort of articulated that's what it feels like but she's an incredibly nuanced character and does feel different and kind of set apart from the rest of them but it's sort of desperate to be part of something and be part of that community and be part of that um family that she's potentially sort of missing at home um yeah so i, I just yeah she's fascinating <laughs> i mean shelly thinking about the points you're making around the recent history of um american independent cinema and these questions of race and gender and class start 
isn't a character we often see in popular American film. Would you agree? Yeah, um, absolutely. I think just that fact sort of adds to what Mel says about her sort of being perceived by the audiences as special um, and that it's not commented on as something, I think that adds to that in, in a kind of way because, you know, American cinema tends to like to foreground non, to use that phrase, non-white racial identity as sort of, you know, in the urban ghetto films or whatever, it has, it sort of, it separates them a lot in films. They're quite sort of monoracial kind of class films often. And that's why I was thinking of Winter's Bone, um, which is set in the Ozarks and a more rural, white, working class, uh, in fact, but not working class, rural, very poverty in that film, but it's very, it's very white and whiteness is, is actually quite central to that film. And I think in some ways that's the situating star at the center of American Honey. I think I agree with everything that Mel said. And I think because she's given the, she's the protagonist, she's the one who has the ending, you know, it's her ending, walking away, you know, into the water like that. And that's quite, that's, that's a kind of not unusual image, right? To see women or characters walking into water as a kind of sort of getting away from things. Um, but she resists the, you know, she resists the cell and the ways that he tells lies and, she doesn't immediately kind of jump on board with everything. So in terms of both her identity, which is uncommented on, but she also reacts differently. Um, she's resistant to kind of the, the law of the company, even as much as she gets on with them. So she's different in, in all those kinds of ways around her, her mixed racial identity, her kind of um, in the history, uh, 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 thinking about films about class. But these questions of girlhood, like teenage girls are really everywhere in Hollywood cinema and American cinema embodying negotiations of American identity and female identity and hopes for the future of what America might be like. And I don't want to kind of put too much on it, but, but girlhood, teenage girls are, are pretty throughout American cinema have been, have sort of had the burden of <laughs> taking on some of these issues in their in stories that in films that they're a part of. And I think there's something about that too in star in the ways that she sort of, she inevitably represents a kind of, image of America, a mixed race America, um, in poverty, working class America, traveling across the middle states, you know, what we think of as, what well, we're not, we what get called the flyover states or the square states or whatever you want to call it, um, in that space that represents sort of um, a certain kind of version of America rather than say city version of America. So there's a lot of, um, she carries a lot of cultural meaning, I think, but relatively lightly because of the way that this is performed um, the positions that she given her resistance to, to sort of different things and her sort of general ways of interacting with people in that community. Uh, absolutely <laughs> fantastic. And um, to build that even further, um, Louisa, so the point that Shelley was making there around this image of America that's often filtered through popular culture with film being a very, very kind of powerful biological tool and a tool of representation, there is something around star and I guess her inclusion into what we would describe as the American working class. That is very, very novel and very, very different in terms of other forms of representation because in the popular imagination, when we think of the American working class, we wouldn't necessarily think of star. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, we get more of kind of that uh, kind of common depiction early on in the film, right? Where she is kind of the caretaker um, for the two, I'm not sure if they're her cousins or right, the two young ones, right? Um, and her having to take on kind of that role. Um, but but then I think one of the things that we see through Star is also 
you know, her willingness to forge her own path kind of when it comes to these things. And so kind of leaving that behind and saying, yes, I will kind of go do this, kind of leaving behind the, or breaking the rules of, of the, the group, right? And saying, I will do this, but only through truth telling, right? And not kind of through lies. So I think we see kind of that um, as well. Um, and then I think also in her interactions, right? When she encounters kind of other people who were, are in situations similar to her own, so I think I was really struck by, um, I think it's when they're in South Dakota, right? And the, um, I don't remember the, the name of the character, the, the woman who oversees everything, right? She says something to the effect of, they're poor, just like us, right? But you treat them the same. And there was this idea of, what, do you treat them the same? Because, you know, it's some question of like dignity, some question of, you know, you should be able to kind of see yourself in that. Um, but it seemed much more malicious, right? Like you treat them the same, you take their money, it's fine. Um, and it was something that Star could not bring herself to do, right? Instead, again, she's kind of brought back into the, the fold, kind of talking with the children, connecting with them, um, and then bringing them food later. There was this sense of connectivity that she, I think she was looking for throughout. And it was the way that she kind of related to folks too, right? And I think when we're thinking about the working poor, people who are working, particularly youngsters, right? Teenagers kind of at, at that, we're given the, also the hustler side of it. Yeah. But she's giving us much more this other, this other way of, of doing that, right? Which is again, interacting, seeking out kind of those connections, right? Which she seeks out pretty consistently throughout, even with a truck driver, right? Kind of, she sits in the, in the cab with him and is talking to him about his family. So I think Star is an unbelievably rich character and gives us a, a like just a variety of ways of thinking about people in, in these positions. Thinking a bit more around this question of representation, representation of the American cinema in all its entirety, but also thinking around the American city and its demographics, there is something about the Florida project to build on the point that you were making earlier, Louisa, that is very, very uncomfortable as well as quite enticing around its depiction of the urban poor. And when we bring questions of racial difference into it, it becomes a very, very novel representation. Um, if I can ask you, Shelley, I mean, thinking about this representation of lower working class living in America, in Florida, being very, very close to this cultural imaginary, which is Disneyland. I mean, what does Disneyland symbolize um, within the American popular imagination? It's quite an important um, institution. Yeah, it's, a, it's an institution of fantasy and escape. Seems focused on children. Um, um, it is focused on children, obviously, and it's, it's been kind of rite of passage for a lot of Americans who can afford to get there or to travel there to do it and to take their kids there. But it also sticks with a lot of adults, um, kind of links them to their childhoods and childhood imaginaries. Um, you know, and the power of Disney, you know, it's far reaching beyond the kingdom. So it's something even if you've never been there, you know all about it. You've seen the images, you've seen the adverts, but also you've seen the films on um, which have become so widely available um, to access in a different way than it was when I was young, right? The amount of DVDs. Um, I think all my students grow up with a collection of DVDs of Disney films, <laughs> the princesses or whatever, um, and the kind of continual output. 
you know, and it, you just think about the way it's built, like, you know, Main Street is called Main Street, right? And it's this, to use those kinds of postmodern phrases, um, one of the postmodern critics talks about it, sorry, his name's escaping me at the moment, but it's a simulacra of Main Street USA, this idea that every small town in America has some Main Street with all the little shops that looks like something you would see out of a film from the 1950s, um, where people have coffee and they go to, to the hardware store, or whatever, and there it is in Disney, this simulacra of something that's not real, that image of Main Street USA that supposedly exists throughout America and is put into the center of Disneyland. And is, to use the current vernacular, safe space, a safe place, a fun place. Um, it's exclusion though, I think is the key thing, right? Like you, how much you have to pay to go, you know, it's just intensely expensive and to make it worth it, the amount of time you have to spend there and how exclusionary it is in that sense, when it sort of perpetuates this idea of being for all of America, for the fantasy of what America is. And the Florida Project is so good at exposing that because it never appears on screen really till the end as this fantasy place that they've either found a way to sneak into or it's actually a fantasy of the film. Like I see it as a fantasy. I think they run away and it's where they imagine they're going. They actually haven't gone there, but the film gives us that fantasy as the viewer. But throughout their ventures, like when they, when um, Haley takes them to see the fireworks for the other one's birthday, because, you know, Disney puts off fireworks every night, you know, that, that they have some proximity to it and can enjoy it on some of their adventures. But it's also the thing that they are excluded from that keeps them out that they can't afford to go to, but that they keep running by their, the community that's off the side that creates this other economy, this other kind of outside economy of the Magic Kingdom, which the Magic Kingdom is never going to recognize. So it has, it's so much a kind of microcosm of American, we've already said this, microcosm of disparity in America, those who have, and then those who don't, and those who kind of keep the, the dark side of, the dark side of the economy going for those who have without ever being um, brought into the center of it. Thank you. Can um, I just can I just add on to that a little bit? Because I think that the, in the Florida project, the juxtaposition of Disney, the, so the Magic Kingdom that you see at the end, and then the kind of the the motels that are kind of called Futureland, and I think theirs is called the Magic Kingdom, isn't it, or something like that. And the the scene where the Brazilian tourists come for their honeymoon, and they're like, "This isn't you know, this is not the, this is not the dream." And I just think that that juxtaposition and the, the you know the colors of the motels and the all of the the light and the decor that that is very florida and very kind of you know sort of neon in its coloring the whole film and it's incredible that you actually don't see disneyland until the end because it's like this sort of wrong version of disneyland the whole time but i find it's so subtle in the way that it does that it takes very sort of beautiful long takes of the kid these tiny kids walking past these like huge purple buildings and exploring them and i think it's yeah i i, I found it one of the it's just so incredible that juxtaposition it really kind of highlights what the film is trying to say about class and what exists outside of the american dream that in this case is is disneyland can i also add on to that as well um, I feel like, you know, Disneyland is the thing, or Disney World, right, is the thing that looms large. But there's also kind of this sense of the role that tourism plays, right, kind of within Florida and in this kind of locale in particular. 
and there's a ton of stuff I want to say about the Brazilian tourists, but I, I'll move in a different direction, um, which is to say um, we're given like these other parts of like what that tourism is, right? Like when they go to the condos that have been kind of demolished or that, that have just have been left kind of unkept, right? And are falling into disrepair um, and seeing the kids kind of walking through these condos that were meant for tourists, right? Full homes, right? With toilets and um, furniture and everything while they're, you know, living week to week, right? In kind of this uh, hotel, motel um, and having to kind of figure that out. I mean, there are ways that they're navigating these landscapes, right? Of things that were not meant for them, right? But where they are aware that these things are not meant for them. The other kind of bit was the, the helicopters, right? Which were also these kind of touristy, um, come, you know, take a helicopter ride. And the kind of noise pollution, right? The eyesore, right? That, that they encounter while they're playing, you know, in the small patch of grass that they have kind of available to them. And so I think while we don't see Disney World, right, we're seeing these other ways that tourists and that outsiders are kind of given more, right? Um, and that those who kind of are residents are expected to live with less and then expected to live with the refuse of what others do not want, right? Or, or where, where they cannot sell. No, thank you. That was um, brilliant um, from all of you. And um, there is something that you've all mentioned within there that is quite essential to um, this episode, which is this politics of difference in America and how these two films um, offer the representation of that difference and how it's negotiated. And I want to touch upon something you mentioned um, at the beginning of our conversation, uh, Louisa, which was this question of precarity, but equally this question of Latino identity, which often isn't the identity we think around when we think of non-white identities within the American political imagination. I can't help thinking about um, the run up to the elections and a lot of the debates around the Latino vote, which is seen to be the kind of forgotten section and strata of society when thinking around where the non-white would come from. And we will talk around the representation of that um, shortly, but there is something in the film around its inclusion of this peripheral character called Ashley, who we see in low-wage living and low-wage working. That is very, I think, representative of a particular existence that is non-white, but in this existence actually isn't black, it's Latino. What were your thoughts on the character of Ashley and how we experience her throughout the film? Yeah, I. Like I said, kind of early on, I really appreciated the representation of like Latinidad here. Um, and I think Ashley kind of in particular, um, we see her throughout kind of the film. Um, so, you know, so I'll, on the one hand, I'll say how much I appreciated it, um, particularly because we're getting these multiple representations of Afro-Latinidad and um, different kind of Latinos, right? So I think depending on where you're coming from in the U.S., your image of Latinidad, right, is it's been kind of uh, dichotomized or kind of bifurcated, right? There's like the Latinos who are like the darlings and the consumers, right? The next market, the next voters, the next, right, saviors, right? Kind of all of this. Um, or else you then get kind of the counterpart to that, which is then kind of the quote unquote illegal alien, right? Those who take, um, who are um, kind of overburdening the welfare states, who are having children, right? A, a lot of kind of racialized kind of depictions um, kind of, of of Latinos. And a lot of that, particularly if you're on the West Coast, right? Is around Mexicans. Well, and 
kind of with the outgoing president. We've kind of seen that depiction, I think, um, made center stage. And here we're kind of getting um, Latinidad in a very different form, right? I don't know where particularly these folks are coming from, but I suspect uh, Puerto Ricans um, right, are a huge population kind of in Florida. And so, so I super kind of appreciated that. One of the things though that I found so kind of curious is that I also think that Latinos are kind of kind of cast in this kind of space of respectability. And so it, was, it wasn't surprising to me that Ashley would be the one who has the job, right? Um, who provides kind of food kind of for the rest of the family, who, who tells Haley, once I become manager, I will get you a job, right? Um, so who, who kind of does that? It's not surprising that the grandmother, um, I, I don't remember her name, but that the grandmother is um, taking care of her daughter's children, right? and then has kind of the nice neat home um, and provides kind of a home for Haley. Um, it's not surprising to me then that the, well, the one surprising thing is the father, right? Who's very strict with, with his son. Um, when they're spitting on the car, he's like, no, come, you're grounded. And then they end up leaving to, I think, New Orleans, presumably for kind of work, right? And so I think this idea of Latinos as laborers we see kind of very much here, this idea of these like multi-generational families or of like the centrality of family um, and of caretaking we kind of see here. So there was a way also that I was like, oh yes, I can identify all of these kind of Latino characters here within this film as well. So I think there was kind of all of that. Um, I'll stop there. Maybe I'll say more about Ashley or about kind of these different kind of depictions kind of later. Um, Mel, was that your similar experience of Ashley, as someone who is othered uh, in American society, who takes on a very, very prominent role in the film, but is, again, is, as um, Louisa mentioned, someone who is essentially always in labour and is seen to be some of the moral compass of the film in relation to whiteness? Yeah, I definitely agree with what Louisa said, and I noticed that about the grandmother as well. And I, I, I found it, what I found it interesting is because it, it focuses the conversation about class and that precarity in a kind of in a whiteness in a way. So it 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 plays the counterpart, right, to the representation of kind of white trash and what we understand like those representations of white trash and trailer trash to be in America. So I on one hand, I was kind of like, well, that's great, you know, it's great to sort of see, you know, like a positive representation. Um, and it's similar in American Honey, you know, like Star is the sort of slightly more kind of together, more complex character, like more of a moral compass. So I definitely noticed that, but I don't know what I feel about it. Because <laughs> like, I, I feel on one hand, it's sort of like a positive thing that we're not, it's not just like these negative portrayals and it is kind of going against that. But also it's sort of like, well, what's the what are we trying to say? Because I, I, I noticed that really starkly in the Florida Project as well when um, Haley goes to, she has to leave the where she is because she can't stay there, that you can't be seen to be living. And she goes to the other motel and there's a new owner who is uh, South Asian, who is, is basically saying, we don't want your kind here anymore. You know, she's being really like, you are not welcome here. We're not doing that anymore. Get out and look at how you're treating your child. So I, ke I kept noticing that in, in race. And on one hand, you're like, good because you know it's like showing people as being like hard working and having a strong moral compass but on the other hand it's sort of sometimes that felt like it was again sort of placing race in this sort of uppity 
kind of disconnected sense from a class that they're obviously within as well so uh yeah I, I I'm that's not very articulate because I, I don't really know how I feel about that but it made me think and feel things <laughs> so Shelley yeah I think I think unfortunately it can sort of be read as working to emphasize kind of how far white femininity has fallen in Haley. Yeah, the sort of idealized white femininity, which is so important to American questions about gender and race. Um, and she represents a very fallen version of that. And I think unfortunately, as much as I absolutely agree with all the things you're saying, like, oh yes, give me some positive representation, but also like, I think inevitably what they end up doing is being a foil, they end up being good foiled others to her fallen white femininity and it emphasizes and even when actually she's quite a complex character I you have a lot of affection for her because she how much she loves her daughter and and the things they do like like that scene when she took her daughter and a friend on that long trek hitchhiking and everything for the birthday to see the fireworks like it's like what is she doing and then they see the fireworks for her birthday and they sing and I'm like oh, this is just motherhood. Like, well, I'm not a mother, but I can't say that. But like, this is just lovely representation of, of a form of motherhood and surrogate motherhood in that instance. But she is the fallen one. She is the white woman who has fallen. Um, when she has gets to the point where she has no choice but to do sex work, to pay rent, um, and the terrible moment when the man opens the bathroom door and her child's there in the bath and closes the curtain. It's Oh, it's just so painful, um, viscerally painful to watch that scene, even though I think it's actually filmed quite subtly and well. But I think, I think that's part of the problems of the racial dynamics in that, in that film, though it's subtle, but I think it's clearly there the more you kind of link up all the different, um, the kind of more prominent speaking characters of color or non-white characters um, you know, across the different races that we see them. They do emphasize Haley's, as I said, I'll keep, you know, I'll, last time I'll say, but her kind of fallen white femininity. Mm. I want to try and conclude um, on this question of representation and questions of accuracy, questions of how the film tries to offer some kind of um, interrogation of that politics of race, the politics of poverty. And Louise, I know you do a lot of research around questions of the welfare state. And um, in that film, in those moments of poverty, do you recognize things that you've uncovered in your research in terms of the way people live in particular areas of the US still? Yeah, one of the things that um, I also kind of found um, really kind of interesting in the Florida project, and actually one of the things that I think was absent in kind of American Honey was in the Florida project, we're really seeing the ways that people are interacting with different arms of the state, right? Um, and uh, one of those being the police, which we see um, when there's a fight kind of in the parking lot. And then we see again with CPS um, and is noticeably absent when Ashley and when Haley, you know, beats up Ashley and Ashley does not kind of call, right, the police, right? So there's like the, the there's the interactions with the police, there's the interactions with CPS, Child Protective Services, right? And then there's the interaction um, with the TANF worker, right? The, the welfare kind of worker. And I found this kind of interaction um, to be really, again, really subtle, right? But showing the ways that, that even the parts of the state that are meant to provide uh, resources that are meant to kind of provide help, right? Are these very kind of disciplinary 
unhelpful kind of parts of the state, right? And then kind of in the face of that, the ways that people are having to kind of figure things out kind of on their own. And so there are all of these great kind of one-liners, I think that Haley uh, says. And so, for example, with the TANF worker, you know, this idea of welfare being tied to work, right, um, comes through. And the TANF worker asks her, you know, you need a job, you need at least 30 hours. And Haley is like, I have applications up and down the street, give me work and I will work, which I think is a, a, an important kind of note on the welfare state kind of in the US, um, particularly with kind of where it started, right? Which was for mothers and for white mothers in particular, right? Um, so I think uh, we're definitely kind of seeing the ways that these kind of um, institutions of the state are in the lives of poor people and often not there to help, right? but there to kind of discipline um, and to really kind of look at all aspects of their lives, right? Particularly the way they, the way they are with their children. Uh, Mel, do you see similar things in both those films, the way the film tries to articulate some kind of commentary on the States of America? Absolutely. I think picking up on what Louise is saying, I think what's interesting about the Florida project really is that there is an absence of that until right at the end so like you say it's sort of an unhelpful welfare because it's where the help should come is where she can't make her rent where she can't find you know work that sustains her and her child and so you have like the William Defoe character or whoever that comes in and sort of helps or like you were talking about the people who babysit or people who give pancakes at the back of the cafe and all of that kind of thing. Um, and they only really come in at the end. And I think the the absence of that in American Honey, I mean, like so many things happen in American Honey where the police probably should have got called on this like ragtag group that are quite easy to find because they, you know, they travel en masse and that never happens. And it's almost like this kind of absence of, it's like a commentary on the absence of welfare and the absence of state help until it's too late. The absence of welfare. Um, Shelley, is that how we situate our two, I guess, non-white characters and how they exist is this absence of infrastructure around them to exist? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it is different though in the films. I think both Louise and Mel articulate it really clearly, clearly. Louise around Florida Project where it is there, it's just unhelpful. Um, and Ashley is someone who's navigating it better than Haley. Um, she, we don't see her interacting so much in in terms of needing the welfare state, but she is the one who calls them on Haley because of that, what, what we already discussed around her kind of role as a kind of positive portrayal in that sense and doing the right thing. And that and that, that in and of itself is interesting. She sort of seems to not need it as much, um, not to, to not have to engage. Whereas American Honey, they just have disconnected. They've basically gone off the grid. Like, I guess is one way to put it. Not in that kind of like rural, like, you know, battle ourselves down kind of going off the grid, but like off the grid on a, on a road trip. And it fits very much into that kind of American version of the road trip film in that sense. And, and Star's role in being, you know, an uncommented on, I guess, other um, who joins this group. And even in the moment when there could have been some interaction with the state in the beginning, when it's she takes she's taking care of the young kids who, again, I'm not like Louise, I'm not sure if they're, I think there might be her like half siblings or something. And then she takes them to their mom. There's no intervention there whatsoever, but she has to completely let it go. Um, and getting on the road means just simply staying away from the welfare state. And then, yeah, of course, there are different points where you imagine the police coming in, but because they're constantly on the move, they're constantly running from it and keeping away from it and not even engaging. 
Um, and there's something to the, again, about the nature of them being teenagers that seems to sort of allow that, you know, she has to, she has to leave the kids, right? Because it's the kids that are so central to the welfare state in the Florida project um, and the CPS and other things that come in to take care of them. So she has to leave them behind. And it's, it's kind of heartbreaking, even though it's really early on in the film that she does that. And she checks in on them later with the very, what we're assuming is a very absent mother. Um, but it, it's, it's structure, it's narrative structure around teenagers on the road allows it to forget their welfare state, to forget the police state, to, to kind of move away from those things and that kind of, and draw on that romanticized American road trip genre. Um, and I think then that's why Star as a, as a mixed race character becomes the, well, she is the star of the film, but she becomes, she so much embodies that through her name, through the little star stickers. And even though they're kind of undermined by the reality that he gives stickers to everyone, <laughs> that kind of grimness or whatever she is, she does find, again, classic thing in American road trip film, she does find freedom on the road, freedom from having to be a surrogate mom, freedom from the abuse of her father, freedom from the lack of daisicalness of the, this kid's mother's, freedom from the welfare state, from the police, um, and, she finds, and she finds friends. And even in that, she seems to find freedom within that with the way the end, both the endings are quite um, they're interesting. They have sort of similarities and differences in the way they sort of walk into these idealized spaces of, of the magic kingdom, which is a fantasy and then the, and, and then the water um, as a kind of an idea of, um, of her own freedom and her sense of self that she can sort of embody that. Again, I think it is linked to her racial identity and that she's sort of othered from the rest of the, the gang, so to speak, even as much as you point out rightly, which we haven't discussed a lot. I know there's not time, is their total investment in rap music um, and the kind of music that they listen to and, and, and how much they, as a group, they, um, they identify and use it as their kind of anthems, I think is really worth everyone, you know, thinking about how that, how that plays its part in the film in terms of this group, but um, yeah. Wow, um, there's so much to talk about in so little time. I think we've come to the end. I uh, just want to say a massive thank you to um, all the um, contributions from Mel, from Shelley and from Mel Louisa. It's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you. Thank you. That was a fascinating discussion that explored a number of themes in both films. And while there wasn't time to discuss this in depth, there is something to mention around the representations of sex, sex work and sexuality in the Father Project. And equally, the use of hip hop music in American Honey as being very, very relevant to these questions of gender and race in both films. That's it for this episode of The Politics of Race in American Film. This podcast is a production by The Ballpark, the LSE US Center's podcast for understanding American politics. This episode was produced by Chris Gilson, Michaela Herman, and myself, Dr. Clive Nwonka. The Politics of Race in American Film is supported by the LSE's Knowledge Exchange and Impact Fund. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the US Center or the London School of Economics. To find out more about the LSE US Center and our work, you can go to lse.ac.uk forward slash united states or follow us on Twitter at lse underscore US. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Thank you.